as we close out this chapter, we're going to be beginning in ver- we're going to be beginning in verse 16, going through the end of the chapter. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, six, verse 16 to 34, uh, 19 verses there. But as we go through the uh, message that the Apostle Paul gave to the philosophers in Athens, it's a very interesting message. And uh, I pray that you'll be blessed as we go through it this morning. But let's begin reading in verse 16. And we will go through the end of the chapter. Uh, Of course, if you have difficulty standing, it's fine if you remain seated, of course. Uh, But we're going to stand in honor of God's word as we are able. Verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who who, who spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, The one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he's made from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on, the, on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given us assurance of this to us all by raising him from the dead. 
And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Father, as we look at this passage, as we look at this address given by the Apostle Paul, this sermon, as we look at the content, we pray, God, that you would be with us, that we would learn from it, Lord, that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. Might he give us insights, might he give us understanding, and Lord, the wisdom and discernment to know how to apply these things to our lives today. So God, we give this to you, we give our hearts to you. Do your work, we pray, as you continue to mold us into the image of Jesus, and we ask it in his precious name. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we begin here in verse 16, we, of course, had seen the Apostle Paul Paul in this chapter in Thessalonica, from which he needed to leave because of the things that he was teaching you know, the, the, the Jews who were in the synagogue listening to him, him preach, and we do know that he was there for three weeks in Thessalonica. Uh, he went from there to uh, Berea, but, but the Jews who did not believe were the ones who basically ran him out of town. Same thing happened in uh, Berea, except for the fact that the Bereans, as we studied last week, we, we, we saw that they had... Uh, hearts that were open to hear. Uh, they, they, were, they had hearts that were more, more open. Uh, they received the word with readiness because they were more fair-minded or more, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Uh, but when the, the Jews from Thessalonica heard that Paul was there in Berea teaching the word of God, teaching that Jesus is the Christ. They came from Thessalonica, riled up the crowds, and and he had to leave from Berea as well. And and we saw in verse 15 that those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So Paul went by himself. We saw in verse 14 that Silas and Timothy were, were, uh, were left there in uh, Berea. Paul came by himself to Athens. Now, one of the things that we don't see Paul doing, uh, uh, excuse me, Luke doing as the writer of the book of Acts, we, we don't see him giving us a lot of detail about what's going on with uh, uh, Silas and Timothy uh, during this period of time. And I, I just want to take you for a couple of, uh, through a couple of passages that, that show us some of the things that were going on between Paul leaving from Athens and, of course, Timothy and, and Silas being there and actually being, moving around quite a bit until they actually joined the Apostle Paul in Athens. And then again, they joined him in Corinth, as we're going to see in chapter 18. Uh, chapter 18 of Acts begins with Paul in the city of of Corinth. We see in a couple of passages um, 
Acts 18, we see a few, a few verses that give us some detail, as well as 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, several verses, verses 1 and 2, as well as verse 6, that kind of fill in this time period here with the Apostle Paul uh, and T Silas and Timothy. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2, we see these words. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, writes, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. So as he writes this letter to the Thessalonians, and by the way, uh, he wrote both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians uh, to the church there in Thessalonica from the city of Corinth. Uh, they, they were among the first of the letters that the Apostle Paul actually wrote. But we see here that Paul tells them that he basically he was concerned for them and couldn't bear not knowing what was going on with them there in Thessalonica. So he sent Timothy from Athens to Thessalonica to minister to them, to, to encourage them and so forth, right? So obviously Timothy had made his way to Athens by that time. We also see in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, we see uh, Luke writing, after these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, as we stated. Verse 5 of chapter 18, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now this, of course, is during their time in Corinth, this is what's going on. So as both Silas and Timothy came to Corinth from Macedonia, that means that not only was Timothy sent to Macedonia, but Silas was as well. It's just not said that Paul sent him or where he sent them. We know that Timothy was sent to Thessalonica. Now, um, excuse me, Silas could have been sent to Thessalonica, it does seem like he would have mentioned that he sent both Timothy and Silas there. He probably sent Silas to one of the other churches, perhaps Philippi, perhaps Berea, perhaps both there in Macedonia. And Macedonia, of course, is in the northern section of Greece. Achaia is in the southern section of Greece where both Corinth and Athens are. Uh, we, we do see that, we, we saw that in uh, verse 14 of this chapter, uh, immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. He had to get, get a boat to go down to southern Greece, uh, Achaia, where Athens is. Looking at verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3. But now Timothy has come to us from you, so he'd sent him there to encourage them, came back, to Corinth with news and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. So this good news was brought by Timothy to the Thessalonians and as I stated, we know that it, it is uh, in Corinth that Paul wrote his two letters to the Thessalonians because Paul, in his greeting to them in both 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, 
he, he says that Paul and Silvanus, or Silas, it, it is the Roman way, the Latin way to say the name Silas, and Timothy are with Paul as he writes those letters. So the, these are the things that have been going on during this time. I thought it would be interesting just to review that a bit. But as we see in verse 16, we find Paul waiting for Paul and, or excuse me, for Timothy and Silas there in Athens as he had sent for them to come. Now, as he's waiting, we see there in this verse that his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. F.F. Bruce writes this, although Athens had long since lost the political eminence, which was hers in an earlier day, and this would have been like four, uh, uh, 400, 500 B.C., uh, when, when they were at their highest point, uh, not only uh, politically but culturally, but still remained, well, Bruce says this, uh, she, Athens, continued to represent the highest level of culture attained in classical antiquity. You know, it was the names Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and so forth that were there in Athens, you know, three, four hundred 500 years before this, and the reputation remained, and Athens remained a, a, a cultural center uh, in the world at that time. You know, something along the lines of Harvard or Yale in, in, in our culture, um, Oxford or Cambridge in England. By the way, do you guys know that I actually taught at Oxford University? I did. I taught at Oxford University on, on a trip there a few years ago. It's been a while now. It's been 15, 20 years ago, something like this. But missions trip to Wales, we visited England, went to Oxford, went to the campus of the University of Auckland, Oxford, where I taught a Sunday night Bible service at the church there, Cal Calvary Chapel, Oxford. You know, so I taught at Oxford. <laughs> That's kind of cool, huh? kind of cool. Anyway, kind of like that, you know, the, the, these, these places that are very heady, you know, and, and, and very elite in terms of the intellectual and philosophies and so forth. Um, one of the sad things that we're seeing today in our culture is that universities are no longer open for discussion. You know, they, they will not, for the most part, the universities in our culture are not allowing certain uh, uh, viewpoints to be shared, which is totally against what a university is to be all about. You know, uh, the word university speaks about unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. We can be one even though we have various viewpoints on certain subjects. Now, as Christians, obviously, there are certain things we've got to agree to. You know, such as there is a God, such as we are sinners. Uh, we, we need salvation that can come only through Jesus Christ taking our sin upon himself and dying on that cross, removing our sin, and, and re we can receive re uh, forg forgiveness. We are redeemed. Those kinds of things and more that are essential, of course, for us to believe. But that's the kind of place that, that, that Athens was. And even as Paul went there, you know, still it was a, 
uh, a cultural center, the, as, as Bruce wrote, it represented the highest level of culture attained in classical antiquity. Now, in verse 17, well, this idea of, before we move on, there in verse 16, we see that, that, that Paul's heart was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. You know, it makes me wonder about what perhaps the difference is between Athens then and our culture, the United States today, in terms, in terms of this being given over to idols, right? And parts, uh, the, the heart of Paul was provoked within him when he saw it as he walked around the city. And, and, and you can read on, uh, and, and part of what I was reading in, in preparing for this during, during the week is the idea that people even today walk, walk through the city of Athens. I, I've never been to Greece. Uh, I hear that Greece is the way, but I've never been to, remember the, remember the movie Greece? Okay. Anyway, um, it's all Greek to me. But um, I, I've never been to Greece. I, I'd love to be able to visit Greece and look at the, uh, visit these cities, you know, Thessaloniki and, and Athens and Corinth and all this, but I never have. But those who've been to Athens take note of all of the incredible artwork, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the, the statues and, and, and the buildings the, and, and so forth. And, and really what they were is, is they were idols that were worshipped. Idols that were worshipped. We, we look at them as art today. Paul mentions art, if you recall, as we were going through that, his, his sermon. He speaks about the art. But they were objects of worship. But I wonder what Paul would say today about the objects of our worship as a culture. I mean, what are the things that get between us and God? What are the reasons that we do not worship God with, with the fervency uh, that he is worthy to receive? You know, what, what, what are those things? Well, there in the city of, of Athens, there were idols everywhere and there were idols everywhere because there it was a pluralistic society in terms of the the, the gods that they worship it was a pantheism really is what it was everything is god and god is everywhere god is in everything so everything is worshiped as god and and there was a a, a memorial or a, a an idol uh, constructed for that worship of those gods. And in case they missed something that they didn't know about, they had one that was called to the unknown God. We'll get to that in just a moment. But certainly in our culture, idolatry is rampant. Whether it is money, things, having a position, uh, a relationship maybe with a particular person, having a, a, a sense of reputation, making it uh, within our own field of, of, of work, um, our own field of study, um, whether it, it could be sports, it could be entertainment, uh, it could be politics, 
you name it. And these things are worshipped by men and women in our culture, getting in the way of our worship of God. And even as Christians, it's easy to do so because of the condition of our culture. And we've just simply got to be careful of those things. Well, in verse 17, we see that, that the Apostle Paul uh, reasoned in the synagogue. He, he's, he's waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to arrive. His heart's provoked. Therefore, we see, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with gen the Gentile worshipers, the God-fearers, right? And in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So both in the synagogue and in the marketplace, uh, the agora, uh, the, the marketplace which could be seen from the hill, the, the Mars Hill where the Areopagus was, you know, viewing down on this, it was like a plateau uh, a couple hundred feet above the marketplace down in the valley, and, and it could be viewed from there. But he would go to the marketplace to, to speak to those who happened to be there and might want to listen and discuss with him this new teaching that he was bringing uh, we, with those who happened to be there. Now, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered Paul. And asked, uh, uh, well, some of them said, what does this babbler want to say? What does this seed picker, that's a literal word there, what does this seed picker want to say? It has to do with somebody who thinks he's an intellectual and he just pack, he's just picking up scraps of information, scraps of knowledge where he can find it. And he puts this together and he just wants to talk about it. You know, and it's, like, it's like he has nothing really worthy to say. It's just a bunch of scraps left over from those who really are philosophers. You know, that kind of a thing. So it was a, it was a slam on, on the Apostle Paul in a very real way. Others say he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. And then Luke adds, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And the word resurrection caught their attention. Now, Stoics and Epicureans. Now, those are words that we know. I'm not sure that all of us are familiar with what those particular uh, lines of thought, what those philosophies actually uh, were. Uh, Epicureans was founded by a man by the name of Epicurus. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? But the basic philosophy that, that he taught was that man's chief good was to have pleasure especially to have freedom from pain. That, that's what Epicureanism basically became. So anytime you, you, you hear the word Epicurean, it has to do with seeking pleasure, wanting to experience pleasure, just simply to have a good time. Is that an American philosophy or what? Well, it certainly isn't new. My goodness, that, that's what most Americans live for, just somehow to experience some kind of pleasure, some kind, something that is convenient, something that we like. We're going to have fun. You know, we, we, that's what life is all about, because girls just want to have fun, right? <laughs> it's amazing how our culture speaks to these uh, um, I, 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 idolatralistic, is that, a, is that a word? You know what I'm trying to say. 
issues. You know, these things that are nothing but idolatry. You know, and it's just an amazing thing to me to see that take place. So that's what Epicureanism is. Very, very much an American thing today without calling it that. But even as Solomon wrote, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new whatsoever under the sun. In terms of religion, they were basically agnostic. That you know, they wouldn't deny the existence of, of a god or many gods, but they believed that they just simply were not involved in the affairs of human life. And so they just wanted to have fun. They just wanted to seek pleasures. And that's what they lived their life doing, their lives doing. Stoics was founded by a philosopher by the name of Zeno, Z-E-N-O. The chief philosophy of the Stoics was that the chief good is virtue. But virtue can't be really known if you are emotionally involved. Therefore, emotions are to be dismissed. No joy, no pain, no grief, nothing. They taught that the rational faculty in humanity is primary. Being rational. Being a reasonable person. That was a primary thing, as well as individual self-sufficiency. These are the things that they taught. And this particular philosophy led to pantheism. From uh, One was agnostic, God's not involved. The other is, is pantheism. You know, every, God is everywhere, so everything is worshipped. And, and so a, a huge difference from that perspective. Um, they believe that God is the world soul. And one thing about Stoicism is that with the way that it was taught, what, what was believed is that it was at its best with a high level of morality and also a great sense of duty. That's what Stoics lived for. And so Paul saw these idols. He was encountered by uh, th- these Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. And F.F. F. Bruce again wrote this. As he saw these things, heard what these Stoics and Epicureans had to say, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce writes, in regard to Paul, the feeling that was uppermost in his mind as he walked here and there through the violet-crowned city was one of indignation. The city was full of idols dedicated to the worship of gods that were no gods. Obviously, Paul understood the reality that there was only one God. He'd been taught that, and that's what he believed. That, 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 that's where his head was at. And we see that he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, these words as he's talking about Gentiles and their worship. Rather, that brings, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. What the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want to have, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. And so stay away from those sacrifices and and, and and even it's wise to stay away from those things that are sacrificed to these idols. 
because these things are actually sacrificed to demons. You know, it, it's not far off from the statement that, that, that he uh, um, makes writing to Timothy about these false um, doctrines, false teachers teaching these false doctrines, that they are actually doctrines of demons. And, and that's really what it is. If there is only one God, then what is the source of all these religions that teach something other than the God of the Bible is the one and true living God? They're doctrines of demons, right? That's where they came from, inspired by the devil and his demons, his, his, his servants. Um, so th those are things that are essential in the understanding of, of, of the cultures that, that Paul is dealing with through the book of Acts. Well, as these philosophers encountered Paul in verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, that place where discussions were had. In fact, judgments would be made in regard to the validity of any kind of new line of thought by these experts in philosophy there on Mars Hill. And that's basically what would take place. Not that anything was going to be taking place with, with Paul himself, but they wanted to hear. And these philosophers wanted to take him to the Areopagus so that he could voice what he has been talking about in the marketplace. And as we saw Luke write, he was preaching to them Jesus and the resurrection. So verse 19, again, they took him up, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. And then Luke adds, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. But as we already cited from Solomon, there is no new thing. There's nothing new in the world. But this idea of novelty is something that is very dangerous. It's something that people, that we as human beings are interested in. Novelty, some, something that's new. But in regard to doctrine, in regard to spiritual truth, in, in regard to the things that God has stated that are true, novelty is a danger. Because we can begin to move off into something that isn't true at all because we want to learn something new. We want to hear something new. But I guarantee you, you keep your nose in this book, you will continually learn new things. Not because they themselves, these things are new in and of themselves, but it's new to you. Because you haven't yet learned it. You keep studying, you keep reading, you keep praying. You keep talking about it. You, you keep studying. You ask the Lord. You, you, you ask the Holy Spirit to be your teacher. He will show you these things. As any individual is ready to obey and apply the truths that we learn from the scriptures, the Lord is very anxious, not only uh, uh, willing, but anxious to teach us those things that we might be changed to the image of of Christ. Amen. That's what he desires to do. So we will learn those new things that we've not yet learned, but they aren't new things, just simply new to us. 
things that have existed for centuries that we just haven't learned yet. Those are new things. Now, verse 22, we see the sermon begin. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So, so at this point in time, we, we, we see that, that Paul is desiring to bring to these Athenians, these philosophers, their attention to the reality of the God of the Hebrews and who he is. In the year 1855, Charles Spurgeon spoke the following words to his congregation. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. Amen to that. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you, will, and you shall come forth as, a, as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. You want to be refreshed. You want to, to have some sense of satisfaction and learning something new or maybe something a little bit deeper. This is what we do. I love the way that Spurgeon spoke those things. Now, as, as the Apostle Paul begins here, in, in, these, in verses uh, 22 and 23, he cites this one particular altar that was worshipped to the unknown God. And, and you know what, guys? This is something that's done today in our culture. Um, there are people who are open to any religion simply because they want to make sure they got their bases covered. Have you ever met someone like that, talked to somebody like that? I mean, there are a number of people like that. It's like, sure, I'll listen. I mean, yeah, it won't hurt. You know, I... I and just the different gods that are worshipped, you know, and, and if a Christian god will add something to someone who, who normally worships Buddha or whomever, it's like that could be something that would be interested in because they, that might be covered. Because, if you know, if you've got these gods over everything, you know, the, the god of the sea, the god of the mountains, the god of the land, the god of the clouds, the god of the storms, the, the god of the sun, the, the moon god, the gods of the stars and so forth, you know, all these different gods, you know, it's like, well, let's make sure we've got our bases covered. So that's what they did. They, 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 
built an altar to the unknown God. So Paul does a great job of relating to them in terms of their culture and where they were at. He begins by saying, God who made the world, verse 24, and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and things. We just sang of that, didn't we? It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, right? He's the one that gives us breath. You know, we can't give to him anything that he needs because he has everything. He is everything. In, in Psalm chapter 50, verses 9 to 12, Asaph writing this, writes, I will not take a bull from your house. This is speaking of God, God speaking to mankind. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all of its fullness. We can't give him something that he needs. We can't add to him anything. And so the things that we give to him aren't things that he needs in order to survive. The things that we give to him, he wants because he wants relationship with us. He wants us. He wants our hearts. And the difference between the Old Testament is the new is what do we put on that, on that idol? Ro- Romans chapter 12 speaks of the fact that we place ourselves on that idol as a sacrifice willingly doing so. And it's not what we can give to God or what we can do for him to add to his pleasure, to add to his blessing or anything like that. He has everything. He's already full. But it's what he has already done for us in Jesus Christ, right? That's where, that's our attention today. We see in verse 26, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all, face, all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He begins there, verse 26, speaking about the fact that he made from one blood, uh, he made from one, some of the translations uh, omit the word blood, we made from one every nation of men. We all came from Adam and Eve, and then later on, we all came from Noah, right? And this speaks of the reality that there are no racial distinctions in the human race. We are all one race. We're human beings. Biblically speaking, it, 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 the, the, we, we see the Lord actually addressing that. F.F. Bruce again writes this in regard to that. He, He writes, neither in nature nor in grace, neither in the old creation 
nor in the new is there any room for ideas of racial superiority. We all came from one blood. Amen? As Christians, we are all one. We are, gathered, we are, we are united together. We are one in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No room. No room for that whatsoever. It's, it's interesting how we, even within our own culture over the years, those places in our culture that would be referred to as the Bible Belt are the places where the greatest racial inequality, inequality existed. Still there to some extent. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, reading our Bibles without believing them and then, and then not responding to what it has to say? No. No. As Bruce said, there is no room for ideas of racial superiority. It's something that is devised within the human heart and the evil and the wickedness that is there. And he's determined, also in verse 26, times and borders uh, of, of nations with a purpose. And he says to them that, that God is the one who set the borders of your own nation and every nation. That is God's uh, work among nations within the world. And he does it for a reason, so that man should seek God with the hope to find him. If we should grope for him, we might be able to find him. And groping is the idea of what we do. In the, I mean, it's like you enter into a dark room you know there's a light switch there somewhere, and so you're groping on the wall to find it. That's the idea. It's just finding something that is there, but as Paul adds, but he's not far from any one of us. In him we have life, as your own poets have acknowledged. So, so Paul acknowledges the reality of, of their own culture, acknowledging that he's not far, and, and that, that we actually have life from him. We see verse 29, therefore, since we, are off, since we are the offspring of God, we are not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devisings. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. These times of man's ignorance God has overlooked. So now he is referring to what these Athenians are doing as something that they're doing out of pure ignorance. And Paul wants to enlighten them in regard to the one and true living God. Remember back in Acts chapter 14, we, we saw the Apostle Paul saying this to those who were in the city of Lystra. We also are men with same nature as you. Remember, they wanted to, to, to worship him, gave, give sacrifices to him and Barnabas, remember? Offer sacrifices. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things. They're, they're idols. Which basically is a good description of what an idol is. It's a useless, vain thing. To the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. And remember that in Lystra, that is where he was stoned. That's where they took him out of the city, stoned him, and left him, uh, left him for dead. 
And I've got to believe that these philosophers in Athens may have responded in the very same way in their hearts. You know, the, these philosophers who are very proud of their intellectual prowess were basically being called ignorant, without knowledge. And it is true, they were without knowledge of this God, but Paul is citing, you've admitted it yourself, this is, this is an, an altar that you made to the unknown God. You're ignorant of his existence. And so Paul is saying it's time to repent, to repent of their views, to repent of the idea of not knowing this one particular God. And, and Paul wants to educate them in regard to that. So he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. He's given, us, he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So he's, so he's preaching here this, this idea of judgment. He's preaching repentance. He is preaching resurrection. Repent. You don't know this God. You need to know him. Seek him out. Repent of your position of not knowing him. Judgment is coming. And we are know, we know, we're assured that man has identified, that God has identified the man through whom the judgment will come because he raised him from the dead. Now, all these things that Paul is saying, I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible sermon to wake up the hearts of these men who did not know the Jewish God. But we see here their response in verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. It was among their own teachings. Their own gods had said there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead. And that's what they believed. And, of course, being people, being human beings, it makes sense. Resurrection, a person actually coming to life who's, who, who had been dead, that's impossible. Especially cultures which have greater knowledge of the human body through study and so forth, right? It's impossible. But we know that it's not because we see the scriptures. We see the reality of what's taking place. And so not just simply Jesus who was raised from the dead, Lazarus, you know, the widow from Nain, her son, you, you know, and so forth. I mean, the, uh, we, we see that taking place in the life of Jesus. As they mocked, some of them mocked, Others said, well, that's an interesting thing. And, and the, the Greek word for resurrection is anos, uh, anostis. Oh, wait, wait a minute. I have it written down here. Da, 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 da. I'm missing it. Anast anastasis, I think it's what it is. Something like that, anastasis. And so they thought the word for resurrection was the name of this God. That, that's how they were kind of re receiving this. And they're thinking, well, that's interesting. We'd like to hear you again sometime. So Paul left. Now, I don't know if Paul had intended to come back and speak some more. But one of the things that we do see, as Paul left here, um, and then verse 34, uh, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite. He was one who was 
in charge of what's going on at the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. As I said, I don't know if Paul was planning to return, even after they said, well, you know, we'd like to hear some more. But we've heard enough now. See ya, kind of a thing. He departed from them. And there were some who had joined them. Now, in chapter 18, verse 1, as we already read, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. He didn't go there again. Some things that are interesting. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which we referred to already, but I, I want to take a look at a couple of passages from chapter 1 and 2. In verses 17 to 19 of chapter 1. Now remember, Paul had just been to Athens. He went to Corinth. As Paul is writing to the Corinthians here, we're going to be reading passages as he talks about him coming and ministering there in Corinth, okay? Verse 17 to 19, chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. A few verses later, verses 22 to 25. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the power, or excuse me, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Remember, he had just left Athens, where all of this human wisdom was being exchanged. All they wanted to hear was something new, some, some new bit of wisdom. That's what they wanted to know. Paul is saying, I didn't come. I came to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom. God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Christ crucified. To the Greeks, foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's interesting to see that 
just in this chapter earlier in Thessalonica, we see in verse 4 of this chapter in Thessalonica, some of them, some of the, the Jews to whom Paul preached were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas, a great multitude. In verse 12, in Berea, therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women, as well as men. Verse 34 of this chapter, in Athens, some men joined him. So from a great multitude, or many, it were just some. He didn't get the response in Athens that he received in those other cities. And suddenly as he arrives in Corinth, as he writes in verse 5 of chapter, excuse me, in verse uh, uh, 3 in chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians, he said, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And he talks about coming not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in the power of and in the spirit. You'll note that something that Paul did not talk about. While, we, while he did speak about repentance. He didn't speak about repentance of sin. He didn't even mention sin. He didn't speak about repentance from sin. But repentance in terms of their knowledge. And their attitude toward this unknown God. And we also see that he did not speak on the cross. He left out sin. He left out the cross. He came to Corinth saying, I was with you in much fear and trembling, and I determined to speak nothing to you but Christ and him crucified. There's power in the cross. Power in the cross. And I, I think, and, and there is varied opinion on this, guys. If you look it up, try to do some reading on it. I mean, and there are some men that I admire greatly that disagree with my own viewpoint. So we can't be dogmatic. But I, I, I do believe that based on what I'm saying here, based on what Paul wrote to the Corinthians and him leaving uh, uh, Athens the way that he did, there were, there were some believers, but the, the, you know, the, the response of the people was, was minimal in comparison to the other cities, Right? And so he's with them in, 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 in weakness and, and fear and, and, and in trembling. I think that somewhere between Athens and Corinth, the Holy Spirit took Paul to the divine woodshed and basically schooled him on the reason that the success was limited. He didn't preach Christ crucified. So he became determined that that's all he was going to do from now on. Does that make sense to you guys? I think that's what it was. I also think that he, caught, he got caught up. Paul was a brilliant, brilliant mind. And I think he caught, got caught up with this idea of Athens and, and, and the culture there in Athens and the intellect and the philosophy and Aristotle and, and all this from the past. And, and this is, I, I, I'm, I'm going to match wits with them. 
I'm going to preach them from their, through their own culture. Not a bad thing to do, but he left out the main thing, which was sin and the cross. These men needed salvation, not to just simply learn of new God, but understand what God wants for them and his purposes in salvation, right? I mean, so, so he left out the, that's what I think happened. Can we say for sure that's what happened? No, because Paul doesn't talk, term it in that way. But what he does say leads me to think that. I, I know, you, you know, Paul is such a great, it's not, it's not like I'm looking for something, some place where Paul blew it, you know? It's like, I, no, I'm not. I just think that that's what happened. I understand what happens in the heart of, of men. I understand pride. You know, I mean, I was just bragging to you about teaching at Oxford. <laughs> I'd like to say it. I mean, let's face it, you know. Yeah, it was, it was just a Bible, just a Bible study. I taught the Bible at Oxford. <laughs> you know, but you know what I mean? No, I, I, it, it, it does kind of, yeah, I mean, when I first did, I go, whoa, I'm, I'm going to teach at Oxford. You know, I, I did that, you know. And um, Paul's doing things much greater. But I understand what pride does to the human heart. And I think that got to him. And I think that the Lord dealt with him before he got to Corinth and he wrote these things. What's the lesson for us? What's the lesson for us? Preach Christ and him crucified. The reason that he was crucified, the sin of every man and woman, the sin of every human being, the reality of it. You know, and, and, you know, in, in this world that we live in where it's a world where everything is relative and there is no absolute truth, it's more difficult than it used to be 30, 40 years ago. It is. But this is the truth. We need to preach the truth. Let's make sure people understand that Jesus Christ took the, their sin upon himself and died for them, that they can have a relationship with the one and true living God. God will lead us. His Holy Spirit will put words in our mouths as we are intent to give the gospel to people around us. Amen. Father, have your way in our hearts. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your um, demonstration of truth, of power, the way that you've revealed yourself to us, the way that you have revealed ourselves to ourselves, Lord, the reality of our sinfulness. And Lord, you met us at our greatest need. You met us at that place where your judgment and your mercy, your love, all intersected right there on the cross. Might we preach the cross. Might we live the cross. Lord, might you have your way in our hearts through your work on the cross. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you remind us of these things, that you'll bring your truth to our hearts Lord, that you will glorify Jesus in it all. We pray that Jesus is glorified even now. And, and even as we've said these things, 
Lord, I pray that everyone here has acknowledged their need for Jesus and what he did on the cross, needing a Savior because of their own sinfulness. But as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed right now, is there someone here perhaps who has not yet acknowledged your own personal need for Jesus? Your own need for forgiveness from God? Your own need to have a relationship with him? If perhaps you've not yet given your heart to Christ to follow him, acknowledging your need for him, I would encourage you to do that even at this moment. Bible declares that today is the day of salvation. Today, today is the day of being rescued, of being delivered from our sinfulness and the consequences of it. A couple weeks ago, we celebrated the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised to prove that what he did a few days before on Good Friday, hanging on that cross, dying for the sins of the world was sufficient payment for the sins of the world, your sin and mine. Come to him. Anyone? Anyone need to come to Christ today? Raise your hand. I'll pray for you. God bless you. I see your hand. God bless you. Anyone else? Anyone else? We'll wait just a moment longer. Thank you, Lord, for working in the hearts of, of every person in this room. Thank you, God, for your work in this one individual raising their hand. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would have your way with this person. Lord, that this person would leave from here today with a sense of freedom, the freedom of knowing that the sins are forgiven. Lord, that they can have a relationship with you and actually are beginning it even now. Even through the raising of the hand, I want to acknowledge Christ. I want to acknowledge that he died for my sins. I want a relationship with God. Thank you for that. Pour your spirit upon him. Fill him with your spirit. Begin to indwell him from now on. And Lord, might he find the new life. Experience the new life that you have given him. So God, thank you. We love you. Have your way with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.